as the myth turns. Because mythology is the greatest soap opera of all time. With your cultural interns, Eris and Z. Interns because we're not professionals. And we're not getting paid. And I'm Z. And welcome back. We are officially in our second season. You Woo! have survived a year with us. Bow, 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 bow. I don't have any air horns. <laughs> 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 Street strats. Anyway, uh, so we Scatting are. And I guess now we're in. We're into to, to yodeling and stuff. Welcome to the second year of the <laughs> <laughs> It's going to get weird here, folks. <laughs> if it wasn't already. And in fact, we were starting off with uh, medical myths. Yeah. L- less so. mythology about medicine right. and more like shit we used to slash still do that's not scientific at all. So hold on to your essential oils, Karen, because it's about to get messy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, uh, vaccines don't cause autism. Yeah. So, yeah, that is is a myth. Like, that, that the myth is that vaccines cause autism. Right. That is not true. Yeah. At all. Right. <laughs> like also also getting a vaccine doesn't give you the flu. Like yeah. like sometimes you can run a low grade temperature after um, a vaccine, but the bacteria that is in the vaccine is dead. So yeah. all it is is your body recognizing that there's something foreign in here and we need to get rid of it. Yeah. And then basically it's cataloging that bacteria's DNA into yeah. into your brain, into your system. It's as like, like getting it cataloged almost like fingerprinting. It's all right, so this motherfucker comes back. Right, we exactly. know how to deal with him. Exactly. Yeah, in fact, like, um, one of the things that I know is that uh, the, it's not really necessarily the bacteria that causes a fever. Mm-hmm. So much as a fever is a byproduct of your white blood cells working. Yes. Yes. Yeah, um, fever is like obviously there's some danger with it because it's kind of like a like almost like the nuclear option mm-hmm. um, because it it can cause if it gets too high it can cause brain damage but like that's a sign that your body's working right it's and, it's, it's burning it out and and you won't get a brain damaging kind of fever from a vaccine like oh, you'll, God, you'll get no. a low ten or low grade so if you normally yeah. run like ninety seven point seven yeah. you're gonna get a maybe ninety nine degree temperature yeah like Fahrenheit for those who yeah who do Celsius I mean like if you do then it's because you have no immune system right <laughs> right right and that is a thing you probably are already aware of so and you so you should be getting the vaccine anyway because otherwise you you could get even more sick yeah exactly so in any, in any event autism doesn't come from a vaccine vaccines um, are good you yes. should keep getting them. Because they help other people survive. Right. It's a community thing. The myth behind vaccines causing autism comes from a... And if you look this man up, it straight up says that he's a discredited ex-physician. His name was Andrew Wakefield. But he was a gastroenterologist, which means he studied the stomach. And this bitch decided that autism came from vaccines based on eight parents of children that he treated who had autism like eight, like so eight people out of the seven billion people in the world he decided like and yeah, he was a gastro- his pool of subjects seems a little small like like gastroenterologists don't study vaccines and yeah. they don't study the brain and they, they don't study like behavior like he had no business getting in on this and this bitch did anyways and he published an article in the lancet which is a, a british journal in 1998 and so now because of this dumbass a lot of people think the autisms come from vaccines, when in fact they do not. And in 2002, the New England Journal published um, a study where they uh, had 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 researched 500 or 530,000 subjects, volunteers, and just determined that there was no link between the MMR vaccine and autism. Mm-hmm. So, like those of y'all who are still like, well, you know, maybe, no, no, yeah. no. 
It has no. just as much credit as people saying knocking on wood what? actually gets rid of demons. Like yeah. that's that's awesome. that's what you sound like. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, um, but like you know, six hundred years ago when people were like, "Oh, my child is a changeling." Mm-hmm. That's that's what you're saying. Yeah, essentially, like fairy stole my baby. Yep. Like, no, your baby's two now, and your baby's growing yeah. up, and this is now you're realizing. Yeah. That your baby isn't going to remain infanthood and yeah. small and wee and unverbal. The, the idea, too, that autism is, is only a recent thing or it's only become a thing since vaccines have become popular is also a lie. Um, in the 1800s in Massachusetts, there was, um, it was in, in, the, in the spring and the summer of 1846, uh, the Massachusetts legislature appointed three, three guys to go create a list of quote-unquote idiots because that's what the medical term at the time was mm-hmm. for people with intellectual disabilities. Yes. Had a really wide range, too. Yeah, it did. Um, so these these three dudes were supposed to go catalog and make a list of all the people with intellectual disabilities in Massachusetts. And um, there were uh, quoted as saying a great many cases that were difficult to say whether they were classified as, as quote-unquote idiots, mm-hmm. um, which I'm really not a fan of that term. But um, because there were so many people that were they, – they, exhibited a limited ability for spoken language, but that they would have like perfect musical pitch or other areas that were superior mm-hmm. to the, the average Massachusetts and Ninians. <laughs> I used to do it. I used to know it right up until you said it. <laughs> it's like when people pronounce elephant wrong. And right. they say, like, effalump, and I was like, well, shit, now I don't know how to pronounce it anymore. Right. If that's it, effalump forever. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, how do you actually pronounce it? No idea. He fucked it up. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and that was in 1846. So even before the Civil War, like, there were documents of people with autism. Yeah. So it's not a new thing that's been on the rise. It's not something that developed out of vaccines. Also, if you feel like you don't want to give your child, like, let, let's just say, let's just say, just for the sake of argument, that there is a tiny itty bitty itsy bitty teeny weeny yellow polka dot bikini chance of <laughs> of your child getting autism from a vaccine. You would rather your child die than to yeah. have autism. Like really, like like my okay. Ah, I'm sure this seems really weird that I'm so hyped up about this, but like my brother's autistic, and he is an amazing, wonderful, a beautiful pain in the ass brother, and um, I will punch you over him. So yeah. listen, um, there while there are no physical markers. For, for autism, there there are certain things that we can obviously categorize it as. And that was something that they began developing definition for even mm-hmm. in the 1800s. And the reason that it seems like it's it might be on the rise is because we keep expanding that definition of yeah. what autism is and the different ways yeah. that it can manifest. Yeah. Because while one person who is overly stimulated might get really hyper, another person might get really aggressive. Yeah. Um, and so in 2007, it, the statistics got, seemed to indicate that one out of one every 150 people were autistic. Whereas now that definition has expanded so much that it's, we realize that it's more likely one out of 45 people. Yeah. And also like... And that's a good thing that that definition is developing because that yeah. means more people are getting the help they need. That doesn't mean that yeah. it's becoming a bigger issue. It means that right. we're helping more people. Also like our information gathering sources are much more advanced. Right. So there's less people falling through the cracks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's also just like more people. So if it seems like there's, wow, there's a lot of people who, who are having issues. Mm-hmm. It's not like the percentage is probably the exact same. Right. It's just that we're 
more aware of it because of the internet and because yeah. of television and because of yeah. the media. Now it's easier to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. Where you know, hundred years ago, you knew your neighbors, mm-hmm. and that was it. Yeah, if, you, if that, depending on if, how far apart you lived. Yeah, you really only knew the people who were literally locationally based to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and now I'm, we and now like I have people that I talk to who live in Washington State. I have people who I talk to who live in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Like, and yeah. I talk to them on a on a frequent basis. Like yeah. they we have, they live. Ways away from me. Right. And we have listeners all over the world. Like yeah. we were just looking at our stats this morning. Um and we have people in Australia and in Canada and in India and in what was it? Singapore? Korea. Yeah. I thought like, that was super cool. Yeah. Like, the podcast? How? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so so that's super cool. And, and even just even just that little bit of communication that we can share is it lends to a big explanation as to why it might seem like autism is on the rise when really it's just that we are more aware. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like autism didn't, didn't get a name until the 1930s, so it didn't even have a name to it until then. Like even even the guy that put a name to autism, uh, Connor Canner, maybe K A N N E R. He said that he never discovered autism, that it was always there, because even late into his career, people were already trying to say that autism was a new thing, and he recognized it as like he wouldn't have even known to research into it and to give it a name if it hadn't already existed. Yeah, he just knew how to um, formulate it, like yeah. how to how to find the uh, symptoms of yes. it better. And um, big myth number one. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, kind of uh, hand in hand with that is that uh, like feral children. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, most cases of quote-unquote feral children um, have been debunked as children that probably had um, a mental um, or intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Probably the most notable is Victor of Aveyron, um, who lived about 1788 to 1828. Um, he was uh, the feral child out of out of France. Mm-hmm. Um, he came into, into civilization when he was about 12 years old. He stayed with several people on and off for those years that they continued to find him in the wild, and then he would run run away again. Um, and uh, initially, they, they assumed that he'd been raised by wolves, but recently, looking into accounts from that time probably indicates that he was actually autistic. There's a lot of accounts of him like grinding teeth and incessantly rocking back and forth, oh. um, having sudden spasmodic movements. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. He didn't understand tones of voice, mm. um, which is a which is kind of a hallmark of autism is not okay. being able to read those social cues. Gotcha. Um and and even when they when they would try to teach it to him, it was not something that he even seemed to be able to pick up on. He uh, also had a, a difficulty showing empathy so rather than like where's where somebody when somebody is crying another person might walk up to them and like pat pat them on the back and just kind of you know like touch and be like hey you must be upset otherwise you would be crying i'm gonna try to comfort you whereas he would display frustration and not being able to like express Mm. that also the they when they found him they did a physical on him he had a bunch of scars on his body which they you know assumed was from him living in the wild but again you know recent research on it probably was from familial abuse from whatever family he lived with, probably probably, probably him abused into him. Yeah. being quote unquote well probably more high functioning. Right. They're like, if um, I just hit you hard enough, you'll become a functioning member of society. Like, how does that logic? Yeah, that makes again? that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Whatever. Um, but also like children need to be nurtured up until they're about six, and then after that they can theoretically survive on their own. They they're, they're not gonna yeah. be functioning. They're not gonna be normal. Yeah. But yeah, they yeah. can survive. They just not an endorsement to try this. No. Fuck no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No. But no. But, it's actually funny because, like, so, so I, I work in a kids' library. Right. Um, kind of what we like. We don't necessarily we don't use the term feral children, mm-hmm. but it's kind of the thing that always pops up in my head. Um, kids who are frequently 
being neglected or abandoned, mm-hmm. we have this, like, we just write it's like, oh, they came in alone. Because they're very highly precocious. And they, like, know how to handle themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the younger they are, the more scared we get. Because we're like, our average six-year-old does not know how to ask for that that eloquently. Mm-hmm. Doesn't seem to handle... And also, like, okay, that baby's got a cell phone and a purse and knows how to dial numbers and knows how to call themselves a fucking Uber. Like... Mm. Yeah. Be like, what's your, what's your, um, <clears throat> what's your situation like? Do we need to call anybody, like, literally right now for you? Because all of these are bad signs. Yeah. Usually kids who are left alone for too long learn how to become adults too quickly. Yeah. That also develops in the manifestation of other disorders and stuff. Uh, borderline is something that can develop in early childhood. Initially, it's diagnosed as RAD, which is reactive, reactive. attachment disorder. Yes. Um, and that's the inability to make those kind of connections. That's mm-hmm. something that I experience and um, encounter a lot in my job uh, as a mental health technician. So specifically with Victor, they think that he was probably alone for about six years before they found him, just sightings and stuff over the years, mm-hmm. which would have been about the time that he was six or so. Um, and yeah. they guess his age based on by the time he got back into civilization and stayed there without running away again. Within a year of that, he had hit puberty. So they guessed him to be about 12 years old. Okay. Then they had had sightings for about six years. So so when you put that timeline together, a child needs to be nurtured from four to six years of age yeah. before they can survive alone. A lot of the times, um, autistic symptoms, like regression that occurs occurs from between two and six years old. Mm-hmm. So what could have been is he could have seemed like a normal, quote unquote, normal child. Right. And right. then he regressed. And then the abuse began and then his family abandoned him. Yeah. And he lived alone in, in the wild. That It makes a lot of sense that that mm-hmm. would... But that that timeline works. Right, timeline. He, he kind of sort of has a little bit of a happy ending. Um, Jean-Marc Gaspard Tard was um, a young physician who uh, adopted Victor and gave Victor his name because before that he was just the feral child. Aww. Itard really kind of coined and developed the uh, the method of uh, ped- pedagogy, I guess is how you say it, P-E-D-A-G-O-G-Y, which is learning how stuff is learned so that you can learn how to teach it. Oh, and that, that okay. almost seems like the fundamentals of teaching, but we get it from this guy because of his work with Victor. Interesting. Um, he also, okay. like, you might know his name because he also... It seems um, obvious now, but, like, right. it wasn't back then. Right, right. It was, I mean, it was the 1700s. But he also developed the oral education that we use to teach people who are deaf. Mm. Um, he also uh, developed uh, otolaryngology or whatever, but basically it's um, ear, nose, throat surgery. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, which you know would make a lot of sense if that's what he was he was developing was language skills and stuff. Right, right. Um, but so he he adopted Victor and uh, Etard's housekeeper um, was one time uh, you know cleaning and stuff, but she was she was crying, mourning the death of her husband. And it's the first time that Victor is documented as showing empathy Empathy. in the way that we as a society can eventually show it, as in attempting to console her. Right. And when he passed away, he passed away at the age of 28 from pneumonia, living with that housekeeper after Etard had also passed away. Aww. So, you know, he kind of had a a little bit of a happy ending, considering Yeah, found people who were not little dickbacks. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that's another thing. It's like, feral children have also been debunked as um, a misconception. I know a lot of the times uh, mental disabilities... And intellectual disabilities were seen as as quote unquote divine retribution mm. for the sins of the parents, especially in that that day and age. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of like, oh, your yeah. dad must have been evil, so it yeah. all went into the child. Yeah. Also, like, a really notable quote, like feral child is um, Jeannie, um, and I believe that was in the seventies or the eighties, and she was found at the age of twelve, I think, like strapped to a lawn chair with a hole in it and a bucket underneath. Ugh. Um, and it was because like uh, accounts from family members. 
and I think a doctor or whatever indicated that she had probably been diagnosed as um, uh, mentally retarded and the the family like feared that she would be taken away. Also, I believe the father also had an intellectual disability. Oh, yeah. um, and so they, they didn't, they kept her in a, the basement and mistreated her. And because of that, she really, really missed out on a lot of opportunities right. to, to learn. No, I'm sad. That I you're know. Me sad. I'm sorry. We're getting real up in here. Okay. <laughs> it just, it makes me wonder. Cause like, I know that the changeling child myth, mm-hmm. like literally the myth, the fairy tale story, mm-hmm. the changing child, um, is now attributed to like a way to explain when your kids don't act like other kids. Right. Right. Also, um, it makes a lot of sense that like changing children sometimes would occur about four years old, and that's when a lot of regression occurs. Like that's yeah. how that's how my brother was. He was about four or five, mm-hmm. and he used to he would talk and he would you know use scissors and was or was learning to use scissors. That's kind right. of about that age they start yeah. to teach that. Mm-hmm. You Not know, well, but they, is, they got the mechanics down for the most part. Right. They're just right. kind of yeah, wibbly wobbly all over the place. Yeah. Um, would sing his ABCs, things like that, and then just kind of one day he didn't, mm-hmm. and um, that's a thing that it makes a lot of sense that the changeling myth would come mm-hmm. about because that is something that you kind of have to mourn is it's almost like it's a whole different person living with you now. Um, and you, you really like as, as a sibling and as a parent, mm-hmm. um, as any kind of family member, grandparent, you mourn the idea of who that child was going to be. Yeah. Um, and you really have to kind of come to terms with it's it, expectations aren't always met. And this is yeah. just a pretty big one that you're losing, missing out on. However, I will say me though, wanted to be a fire truck. Right. I wanted so to be a like, spoon. So, so, like, maybe basing your expectations on your child when they're four, yeah. not a great idea. Yeah. Four-year-olds are fucked up weird anyway. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, I hang out with a lot of four-year-olds. I do. I they do. are weird folks. Yeah. Kids are strange. I do I do want to say, though, while, while there is that sense of mourning that families just kind of naturally do, there isn't anything that I would change about my brother. And yeah. I, I know I've had, I've had other friends who have had siblings with autism or had friends that have autism or Asperger's. There's nothing that I would change about any of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's nothing wrong well, with like, being autistic. It's just the person like, they are. Yeah. It's just, it's just a little thing. Like, it's a little I'm different. flighty and I have ADHD. Like my friends right. don't give me shit about, well, okay. My friends give me shit when I'm late, <laughs> which is a frequent occurrence. So like I'm, work, I'm, work, right. I'm working on it. Okay. I'm trying to be better. I'm right. trying to get my shit together. Okay. I'm working on it. But like. They also know that that's just, yeah. it's just like, here's the shit I'm dealing with. Some this people, is the bag of stuff that I was given, and then I just, that I just gotta work with it. Yeah. It's just, everyone gets handed a bag. So, some people like the color purple, some people like the color blue, it doesn't make them... Yeah, and then some people like orange, and they're wrong. Hey, I like yellow, <laughs> and yellow is close. So you, get, you, you back off that. <laughs> and this is the final episode <laughs> No, no, no. I'll just keep my eye on you. (laughs) And I think that's a good time for a commercial break. Hey guys, it's me, Eris, cutting in for a regularly scheduled commercial break, as always. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Pacno Photography. Uh, They've been sponsoring our show since the start. They're a photography business based in Coweta, Oklahoma. Visit them at pacnophotography.com if you need your picture taken. I'd also like to thank Mac Boyle for producing and uh, editing and hosting and providing us pizza and doing basically kind of all the stuff that makes the show go. And uh, I literally don't know 
know how we would do it without him. So thank you so much, Mac. Um, also, thank you, uh, Party Apocalypse, for mm-hmm. hosting us. So we are we are in the mid slash by the time this comes out. Maybe we have figured it out. Not sure, but we are switching hosting platforms. And uh, thank you so much for having us because you guys are super neat. Please listen to all their other shows. Also, we have a new show that will be coming out very shortly called The Holodeck is Broken. It's a Star Trek review. And if you're wondering, well, which which show is Star All of them. We're watching all of them. All the Star, including the movies. All of, We're doing all of them. Now for our fact of the day. So if you have ever used a phrase or been speaking and you mix up the beginnings or the end of two different words, that is what is known as a spoonerism. But it's cold buddies perfect. <laughs> yep, oh, cold buddies perfect. You know, and sometimes when the when the fit hits the shan, you just gotta you just gotta get going. <laughs> you gotta pray to the, the to the Lord, our 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 shoving leopard. Yeah. Uh, and and that is basically uh, hit me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an error in speech in which consonants or vowels or uh, morphemes are switched between two words in a phrase. They're uh, named after the Oxford ordained minister William Archibald Spooner, who was actually pretty famous for doing this. Neat. Yep, that's the end. Goodbye. (laughs) Back to the episode. Alright, so I want to talk about some, like, old-timey medical myths. Um, I think a lot of people have heard of the whole, like, the, the poor humors kind of um, mm-hmm. thing. Like, like they used to be medical truths, and now we know them as medical myths. But mm-hmm. some of these myths have, like, perpetuated, and they, we, we still kind of think about them sometimes right. in a way. Um, but was, we all know the four humors. Um, it's, like, the yellow bile, black bile, phlegm, and blood, and you have to, like, keep them in balance, which is where, like, bloodletting comes from. The whole, mm-hmm. like, oh, bleaches. We got, you got too much, you're too passionate. You're too, you get feverish, you're angry all the time you got too much blood in you so if we just take out some of that blood you should be okay right was the idea which is um not necessarily a sound theory but you can see where they got from point a to point b right same with um, um like the with what's one of the other ones is it is it yellow there's yellow bile and black bile right so yellow and there's blood right yellow bile is like pee right i think so yeah yeah so like a lot of the times that if you have something with wrong with your kidneys or your your urine or whatever then that leads to other issues so you you really can see how one theory began and developed into something else but along with it it developed this idea of sympathetic medicine also Mm -hmm. sometimes now you can call it sympathetic magic because the idea is that like attracts like or whatever Mm -hmm. um so they would treat those issues you didn't have enough blood if you were weak all the time or very pale or prone to fainting or whatever they're like maybe you don't have enough blood Mm -hmm. we should give you some blood Mm. you should drink more blood no yes yeah they would give you blood for people to drink to consume of course um sometimes they would dry it turn it into a powder and then you would snort it fucking gross but i mean yeah. each is if own. you had headache no this is this is europe this is europe no we're talking guys. about european cannibalism if you had a headache best way to fix it eat some brains or some skulls that's a little much yeah uh so I don't i don't mean to kink shame but that's a little much so cannibalism is super prevalent as a medicine as in they used it to do but i mean honestly really like anything that we call like oh 
these other people did something that was superstitious. That was a medicine to them. Mm -hmm. So here's a European cannibalism superstition. We ate a ton of people from basically the time of the Roman Empire up until the Victorian age. It did not stop until Queen Victoria got off the throne. That's weird. <laughs> we did it. I mean, usually by like very careful preparation mm -hmm. of, you know, no, you're eating people, okay? If you're drinking a cup of blood, there's a, there's a recipe from 16th 79 how to make human blood marmalade you can put it on your toast just, it'll fix what ails you this this idea of just like drinking blood like and i know that that's a kink so like i, I don't mean to kink shame with this but like honestly like the idea of like blood swallowing down like down my throat like i just like that's really making me want to gag like, like i that, had that, oral surgery ugh. once and that was super gross i did not think you were gonna say surgery <laughs> Like, I'm gonna had, be just, honest. Like, I had to get a fucking jaw worked on from the inside. Oh. And so, like, I had, like, open wounds. Well. And that they bled. <laughs> anyway, Mac, Mac is very fiercely going, no, no, too much, too gross, oh, God. Oh, man. That's um, great. So, but one of the things, too, is that while Europeans were doing this, they actively... Now, this is the time of colonizing. Yeah. So, they, they ran across people who also had cannibalism in their societies. Mm -hmm. But they were so astounded by them because those guys ate their friends. Right. Usually as a sign of funerary cannibalism. Like yeah. A, uh, like, to, like, someone in your family or whatever or in your, in your community has died in order to, like, keep them with you in the culture and the community, mm -hmm. you would very ritualistically like eat them yeah. or whether you know boil their bones in a broth and eat the soup or something like that um europeans found that super weird but found not at all weird to take those people kill them and then literally just eat their flesh mm, yes. <laughs> europeans eat other people <laughs> everyone else eats their friends and so. in uh, news that you already knew europeans are hypocrites <laughs> it's just super fucked up um but they also believed that the ingredients harvested from corpses people who died violently we're the most potent. That's fucking gross. Um, it's the idea that when death comes suddenly, I can almost see the logic of this. I, not not logic, logic, but like the point A to point B. Right. But like when a person died suddenly, like the, their spirit or soul would be like, didn't realize they were dead. So they would still stay within the body, thereby giving a much larger time window for another person to consume said body and eat their soul. But that I mean, is literally how the medicine is supposed to work. That's, that's kind of another uh, idea about ghosts too is that the more mm -hmm. violent or the more sudden a death exactly the more likely somebody is to become a ghost yes so you can see where like superstitions and mythology and this culture of fairy tales has come and interplay and in how they think about how people work mm -hmm. which then is how does medicine work right like that you can see there is a very connected through line yeah the stories that you believe and the 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 myths that you believe in affect you farther than i think people in the culture give credit for yeah your beliefs matter and mm -hmm. they will affect the even most far wide-reaching parts of your of your culture and society yeah yeah i just really want to talk about cannibalism <laughs> i mean yeah that's now, we got, now, we, now we got now we got hannibal lecter and literally all the food is life and i'm like mm -hmm. food is life oh god why am I, why am I, why am I taking life advice from Phantom Lecter? I don't think he's really smart. Hold <laughs> on, I'm just I'm Thomas Harris. Why are you trying to, why are you trying to tell me? <laughs> you know. Anyway. 
But yeah, there's also several other, like, kind of along those lines, like, very sympathetic mm-hmm. kind of myths brought up a lot of different things. And this is actually a thing that happens, that happened literally all over the world at different times. Um, Like, in China, they were very obsessed uh, for a long time with the idea of mercury being able to expand someone's, like, lifespan and vitality mm-hmm. because it was so mercurial. It right. was Quicksilver, it changes, mutable. So they thought like, oh, well, if we, if we eat it, it's more, um, it will make us be able to adapt more mm-hmm. and to be able to continue to keep living. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I know um, yeah. at one point mercury was used in Europe to treat depression because mm-hmm. it could create um, enjoyable hallucinations. Yeah, yeah. Also, so while while you were poisoning yourself to death, at least you weren't depressed. You can you can see the logic there. <laughs> I mean, like, it's not sound reason. I mean, it's just like, alcoholism with a little bit more toxic elements. Pretty much, yeah. Used to treat syphilis. Yeah, you know, for reasons. <laughs> and, um, one of the things that I that, that's kind of a big one for me, the huge medical myth that affected us for a really, really, really long time was the idea of the uh, wandering womb or hysteria. Gag. And like this, this was something that even was into the 1930s and 40s. Mm-hmm. Doctors were still operating under these assumptions. They gave lobotomies for hysteria. Yeah, which is fucking weird. Also, here's, here's hysteria. This, like, even people who knew that this is not a thing still operated as if it was a thing. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that a uterus bearer's uterus mm-hmm. was a living creature that lived inside of them that could wander around Mm -hmm. because they had such a need to bear children that if they weren't that if the uterus wasn't bearing children it would get angry and frustrated Mm -hmm. and then travel up the body to suffocate you or make you crazy i mean okay so here's the thing that's literally what a syria is having like been a person who has who has had a period (laughs) i mean i'm not saying that uteruses don't make people crazy. Right. I'm just saying, I'm a little stuck on the idea that it's like a living creature. Right, right. That shit don't wander that around. That travels up into my throat to suffocate me. Right. I'm like, look, it's fine. I ain't need the baby that bad. The uterus stays down where it is. Right. Yes, it gets angry, but it's fine. Yeah. You know. Anyway, yeah. But that, that's where hysteria comes from. Yeah. And despite the fact that, like, doctors into even like the 1920s and 1930s, even the 1940s, who knew that it doesn't get up and wander on its own, still treated women as if they do. Yep. They're like, I'm going to treat you for hysteria, you know, because you ain't having the babies. And clearly it is detached. So I'm like, what? So, what, what, but you know it can't do that. So, so, so here's the thing, too, is the hysteria was often treated um, with orgasm, yeah. which is like low-key just a way for doctors to bang their patients. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but also on the other end of that spectrum, it was um, treated with lobotomies. And let's let's just get into the history of lobotomies, right? The mythology of lobotomies. Yeah. Um, so, fucking balls. Okay, <laughs> listen. He's like geared, like literally physically gearing themselves up to talk about this. <laughs> So I mentioned it previously. I work in the mental health field. I work as a mental health technician. So I I mean, I've worked with with children before with uh, rad disorders. Mm -hmm. Um, I've worked with teenagers with autism. I've worked with um, adults with traumatic brain injuries. So I have a pretty large example um, of the mental health field. Now, lobotomies (laughs) were originally performed on two chimpanzees 
who would get frustrated when they wouldn't get a reward for doing a task or a puzzle or something that their researchers had given them to do. And and then they would roll around on the ground and death gate. And so okay. they decided that they were going hey, to... I'm, I'm going to cut in and say, sometimes I work in jobs where my boss decides that for whatever reason, they can't pay me for my week's worth of work. Right. So I have to basically, all that work I just did, I'm not getting paid for. Right. I too would like to roll around <laughs> on the floor and, and just take a shit everywhere <laughs> because that is some fucking horse shit. Right. Right. So I'm saying I'm feeling in solidarity with these chimpanzees. Yes. <laughs> So they, um, they being the researchers and the doctors, cut out part of the chimpanzee's brains. Blah. And upon the chimpanzee's recovery and um, observation from the surgery, one of the researchers said, hey, do you think this could be used on mental patients? And within three fucking months, it was. And the, the, the fucking audacity, the, the, ugh, just the, ugh. So I... Jesus Christ. Okay, so listen. So, so not even enough to see if there's long term anything. No, that is. There has never been a treatment or a medication that has gone through such a short amount of research in our uh-huh. uh, medically modern society that has been used without it. That like I. So, <sighs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> I'm having like an annual. Oh, Jesus. Okay. So you have you have to study these things. Like you can't be, oh, man, I'm really having a hard time here. This is just making me so okay. angry. <laughs> okay. So in the same, same hand that you can't believe that one article written by uh, Andrew Wakefield, who, who looked at eight people, you can't take two chimpanzees and be like, this is going to work on people with other issues. And the issues that they claimed counted as issues requiring brain fucking surgery was if somebody had anxiety, depression, Jesus. anxiety being hysteria, oh my God. schizophrenia, seizures, um, or just frustration, as in somebody would get would get angry often, which was pretty much any female who said no to anything ever. And this was occurring in the 40s and the 50s. So autism had just been um, named in the 1930s. Yeah. So people with autism were also some of the first ones to get frequent lobotomies. Um, initially, it was done, they would inject alcohol into the prefrontal cortex and for those that don't know a whole lot about the brain that's what controls impulses so when you when you sustain damage to the the front of your brain um you kind of lose that ability everybody has these thoughts you know every once in a while you're like man i really want to murder that person because they just pissed me off you have that thought and then you move on because I, I that have those thoughts of, about like um not like self-harm but just like i see a car going by and i go what if i grab his bumper and just like climb on right you, you know have, and i'm just like you, you have these that's impulses. fun i'm gonna walk this, like that's not what i'm gonna do today yes <laughs> when you sustain damage to that part of your brain that's that tells you okay that was funny let's move on you lose that okay that was funny let's move on ability and you just do those things so um in the field that i work i currently work with traumatic brain injuries and that's one of the the frequent things that occurs is the, the loss of impulse control. Mm. So pretty frequently, somebody says something, pisses another person off, and they just backhand them. And that is the behavior modification that we do in my facility is reteaching them how to... Not do that. Uh, or yes. rather, how, how to uh, filter those thoughts. And, yes. Okay. Yes. So to create that kind of brain injury in somebody just because they get frustrated sometimes, one, makes no depressed. fucking sense. Yeah. Yeah, like, well, they're not depressed anymore, but also they have no idea what's going on because, ugh. anyways, so they used to, they, they initially would inject alcohol into the, pre, the the front of the brain. And then when they were having to frequently dose people because their brains were 
recovering slowly, they got tired of that and decided they were just going to cut such sections of the brain out so they could save money on the alcohol that they were injecting into the brain and time that they were spending on each patient. And just what bullshittery is that? You know what I mean? Like, that's just a fucking... This sounds like literally, um, you know, so you know, you know the Wild West, right? You yeah. know all the stories and stuff with like the snake oil salesman? Yeah. With the whole like, here, I have this really get-rich-quick scheme. Yes. Because uh, I'm sure they're tar- charging the families for this. Oh, yes, yes. Between 1940 and 1950, when, um, in the early 1940s was when lobotomies were first kind of invented, that, that idea of it. Um, 20,000 lobotomies were performed in that 10-year period the in the UK. And in the U.S., um, 60% of American patients who received lobotomies in 1951 were females. And between 1948 and 1953, 74% of uh, Canadian patients were females. Oh so it really was just that women said no. Most notably, um, people who, uh, one of the probably more popular um, victims of lobotomy, because it really is a victimization, um, was uh, one of the Kennedy's older sisters. Mm-hmm. So, I remember hearing about that, right? Yeah, and it's, it's, it, Walter Freeman was a man who did most of the lobotomies in America, is quoted as, as calling it surgically induced childhood. And I, I, I'm sure you guys can tell, I feel very passionately about the subject. It's what I work with. I, I work with people who went for a drive and got into a car wreck, as, as sometimes it happens, and their lives are completely changed forever. They will never be the same. So very frequently, we see on TV, a character gets into a coma, and then they're miraculously come out of it. And that yeah. happens so often. Here's the thing. Once you get to that coma state, if you come out of it, you will never be the same. That's like, that's, yeah, it's, it's called traumatic brain injury for a reason. Um, something irreparable has happened. Yes. Yeah. Also, this same guy, Walter Freeman, is quoted as uh, speaking about a 29-year-old female patient of his saying that she was smiling, lazy, and satisfactory with the personality of an oyster. He also said that um, if she was misbehaving to smack her, and if she was behaving the way that her parents wanted her to, to give her ice cream, the, or several of the symptoms of lobotomies were death. 5% of all lobotomies resulted in deaths. Oh my God. Brain damage, obviously. Incontinence, which um, I don't know, uh, for people that don't work in the medical field or aren't familiar. Like basically, you can't hold in, like, you don't, defecation anymore. You, you don't know when you need to go to the restroom. Yeah, so, so you just go. You, you will defecate or urinate on yourself. Um, seizures and uh, massive weight gain. Um, I have actually quite a few patients. It's really not uncommon for patients with brain injuries to not realize that they're full and they will eat until they're physically sick and they don't have that ability to rationalize like, okay, well, I did just eat a whole rotisserie chicken. So maybe I'm, even though I don't feel full, I might be full. They don't have that ability to rationalize that. And, and, and it, it just, it's so abhorrent to me that this occurred especially within the last hundred years. Like you hear mm-hmm. about like awful things that occurred in like World War II and stuff. And like the, just, oh, it and just must be the like, absolute evil people. But we had doctors here that are still alive. This man, Walter Freeman is in his sixties is, or in, I guess he'd be in his seventies now, um, but he's still alive. He still, he still yeah. gets to do shit. The guy that invented the lobotomy surgery won the Nobel Prize for it. And, like, it never got taken away. Like, he, like, despite everything that we know about lobotomies, he still holds the title for that. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. just pretty disgusting. I, I work in a field where you really get to see kind of the worst of humanity and the best of humanity. You get to see people when they are the most selfless because they don't have that ability to rationalize. Like, maybe I shouldn't do this because it might affect me. They will do things selflessly because it's just in their nature. Yeah. And then you see some people who 
have been effectively abandoned by their families because they just can't handle that kind of stress anymore. So you get to see, you unfortunately have to see that side of the the field. Um, we have, we've had patients before who, I don't know, I've, I've always heard, you know, that um, way back in the day, they they would see somebody with a, with a disability or a disorder and assume that they were possessed by a demon. I was just always like, man, that just sounds like some of the most Christian cultist shit ever. Right, right. But we have had patients who like, I actually have people who work, who I, who I manage over and, um, who legitimately believe that one of our patients is possessed by a demon. And it is the weirdest thing to encounter because like, what kind of backwater bullshit is that? Yeah. But it's also, you're dealing with it every day. If you think about it, a a patient who might see present as if they would be possessed by a demon or something, you really kind of have to think about what they're seeing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in, in certain States, if not in all States are like this, but in some States, um, it's legal to, to hold, tie patients down. Um, I think it's, I think it's legal in Washington is, is one state where you can do four point restraints, which is ankles and wrists, mm-hmm. um, or ankles and shoulders, things like that. Um, if, if a patient were to become mildly lucid at one point, which, which happens sometimes they'll come in and out, yeah. um, and realize, Hey, I'm tied down and there is a strange man in this room. And you like, say, say they're a female patient or something. Yeah. What the fuck is going on? Your body is immediately going to go into panic mode and everything in you is going to pump all the adrenaline out at one time. Yeah. And you're going to fight everything you can to get out of that situation because where the fuck are you? Who the fuck is this person? Why do I feel so gross and nasty? When was the last time I brushed my teeth? How long have I been here? You know, like, yeah, that, these are the things that are going to go through your brain um, and you're going to fight as hard as you can. And that is what is going to give people who don't have a brain injury kind of that idea that this person might be possessed by a demon and it's really weird to like have heard these legends i guess of people doing this way back when and in like third world countries but then like i actually work with people who legitimately believe that one like we've had patients in the past who have been possessed by a demon and that is just the weirdest bullshit ever but and i mean obviously it doesn't it doesn't affect the way that they treat that patient other than that like they pray more in their room but because i don't know it's just it's so weird to see there are a lot of myths surrounding the medical field that are prevalent even today yeah and a lot of obviously yeah. I'm very passionate about that. Yeah, I'm so yeah. sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um. Anyway, I think uh, I think we're gonna wrap on this episode before we just like flip this table over <laughs> and then get kicked out of Matt's house. <laughs> <laughs> Done with this. <laughs> we'll catch you next time, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to like, 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 like. And subscribe to Ask the Myth Turns on Facebook and Twitter. And email us at askthemythturns at gmail.com. Transcripts for this episode can be found at our WordPress site, asthemythturns.wordpress.com. Our theme song is called Fretless by Kevin McLeod. You can find this song and all his others at incompetech.com. <laughs>